The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. You could call this part two of last week's message, which, as I read from John 6, 35 to 47, last week the focus was almost entirely on 37 through 40, particularly verse 37, which I'll have you note as I read it again. But we go on a little further with the emphasis placed on another part of this passage, verse 44 today. Listen as I read words from Jesus. John 6:35 Jesus said to them I am the bread of life Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews, and by the way, that means the Jerusalem leaders, that's the way Jesus designated them, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is God's own word by his Son. Picture in your imagination a scene. Four men plot together to rob a bank. They have their scheme all worked out, how they will enter the bank, who will do what, how they will escape. However, one man has a true and courageous friend who hears about this and, no, no, you shouldn't do this. Don't do this. And the friend is so concerned that on the morning that he knows the robbery is planned, he shows up at the house of his friend and sees him emerging, realizes he's going to join the robbers, and he again 
argues with him, and when it seems he cannot persuade him not to go, he tackles the man and pins him to the ground until he subdues him enough that the man agrees not to go through with the robbery. Well, the robbery happens by the other three. Two policemen are shot. One is killed. The three robbers are captured, tried, convicted, and their sentence, of course, is not just robbery but homicide, so they're sentenced to death. Now, this fictional scene has me ask this question. Does the fourth man who was prevented by another from being a bank robber only by that friend's intervention, does he have any grounds to say why I am a morally superior and wiser man because I did not join a robbery? You would say, of course not. It wasn't even his idea to not join the robbery. He wanted to join the robbery, but he was actively opposed by a benefactor who, in fact, actually saved him from a death sentence. Now, you may think that illustration is a little too crude or brutal, but it's really, in principle, not far off from saying, here is the debt that every reborn Christian whose heart and mind has been turned around by the Spirit of God from the way in which it was bound coming into this world, here is the debt that every Christian owes to the grace of God and the Holy Spirit of God who has made us different from what we were coming into this world. God's grace turns His people so they can come to Him and have life and as Jesus said, be raised up on the last day. Now, last week we declared this mysterious doctrine that many dislike, the doctrine called election taught in the Bible in numerous places and taught here very clearly by Jesus himself, especially in verse 37, as he said, all people, that is, all people that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes I will never cast out. You cannot mistake what he was saying. Either these simply are not Jesus' words, and therefore they're false because they aren't his words, but if they are, and the Scripture declares them to be, then the message that they give is rather unmistakable. God designs the salvation of those whom he will. It's mysterious. It's deep. We don't plumb the full understanding of this in our lives. But God gives a people to Christ, and Christ does what is required to win them, to come to Him, and they will not be cast out. Now, I'm saying to you that in the briefer time I have today on a communion Sunday, verse 44 needs to be a companion piece, like the other side of a pair of bookends to verse 37. And by the way, the message of this, I, I'm not, we'll get to this passage at a later time, but if you wanted to look ahead to verse 65 in this chapter, you'd see that once again he reiterates this truth there in verse 65. He says, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So here now is a statement, not only does God design eternal salvation for particular people, but he enables He plants the motivating power and turning of the heart and the mind that allows it to take place because he says nobody could do it without him drawing. 
So these two belong together. God's design and God's enablement. God the architect and and God the general contractor, if you will. One lays out a plan. The Father lays out the plan. The Father or the Son and the Spirit put that plan into action in a life. It's God's grace that I'm saying acts like a great magnet here drawing those whom God designs to Jesus Christ. Now, the context of this passage is a long dialogue that fills most of chapter 6. Remember, it started with talking to the people who had experienced the feeding of the 5,000, but, but now the temple leaders are obviously sitting in. When John says the Jews grumbled as he does in, he wasn't talking ethnically of everyone who is born an Israelite. That term usually refers to the leaders of the temple. They were grumbling about what Jesus was saying. They were saying, good grief, how does this man say he came down from heaven? They knew enough about him to know that his, the one they thought was his birth father, Joseph of Nazareth. They said, we know his father. We know his mother. How can he say he came down from heaven? Jesus responds to them in the midst of this bread of life discourse, going on a bit of a tangent, but he returns to the subject at hand in the next part of the chapter. But he says, look, you're using my low birth as a reason to distrust me or criticize me. But the fact is, the reason you don't believe in me isn't a surprise. It's that you cannot believe unless and until my Father draws you to do that. And he evidently hasn't done that. Now, I have two main points today, and I want to take John 6, 44 in terms of its simple statements, breaking the the statement in half. First to say, no man can come to me. That's only part of the sentence. And then the second point will be the rest of the sentence, except the Father draws him. The first part of the sentence, no man can come to me. That's a statement that has to be taken very, very seriously. I think that the first movie I can remember ever going to, and I'll date myself because I know for a fact that the theater I was taken to as an elementary school student had 25 cents as the admission price for children. Does that date me a little bit? I remember going to see Walt Disney's Pinocchio, one of the real greats, Monstro the Whale you know, even as long, quite a few decades in life, I still think of Monstro as a terrifying uh, monster. But you remember the story of Pinocchio, the wooden puppet who, through some kind of spell, became a real boy. And when he became a real boy, he sang a song that many of you could think of. I'm not going to… If I was Pastor Irvin, I'd sing the song, but… He sings much better than I do. But the song says, I've got no strings to hold me down, to make me fret or make me frown. I've got no strings on me. My sister dated a man for two years of college, and they broke up in their senior year. This man was the head waiter. Then you went in, and there were waiters and waitresses in the college dining hall, and and he broke up with her, and uh, often... Someone played piano music while the students were coming into the dining hall. Well, this man happened to be a good piano player, and when my sister came into the dining hall the day after the breakup, he played, I've got no strings on me. He's been my brother-in-law for a long time. 
But let me tell you that Got No Strings on Me is a tune and a theme, you might say, that many, many people would declare about their own understanding of the human will. My will can decide whatever it wants to. You know, God does something, I do something in response. There's nothing binding me, there's nothing holding me back, there's nothing constricting me. Got no strings on me. Well, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but that is not a biblical picture of the human will. You indeed have a will. We don't deny that. The Scripture does not deny that. You decide many things. You decide who your friends are, where you go to school perhaps, what kind of car you drive, clothing you wear, what you study, jobs you might take, all kinds of things. Commercial purchases, of course, your mind does many practical things to make decisions. Even those are not entirely free if we wanted to go into that. Advertising and everything else is an influence on you, but leave that alone and just say you've got many free choices. But it's not an absolute free choice in all areas. That's the biblical position. There's a very crucial area, the choice of God, the choice to know God, delight in God, worship God, and obey God entirely that you were created to be able to make, you no longer can make. Your will is broken in that area. A guy named Adam broke it. And you've been breaking it every day, doing the same thing as Adam, choosing against God. You have moral and spiritual inability, the ultimate and greatest choice that there is to know and love God is not open to your will. In fact, Ephesians 2, 1 says, the natural man or woman born into this world is born spiritually, only in the spiritual way, dead. You can't make that choice there. There's no innate desire for God. Sin actually has murdered that faculty in you. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says it. Similarly, the natural man, that is, man as born in this world, unaffected in any change by God, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. They cannot understand them, for they are spiritually discerned. The world shows us every day how much the things of God are foolishness to them. As they, they describe things that are pleasing to God and say, those are terrible, those are bad things, those are bigoted things, and then they describe things that displease God and say, this is good, this is loving, you ought to do this. The world is turned inside out in its understanding of spiritual things. Now, Jesus here spoke about coming to him. That is the act of conversion, the act of recognizing him, bowing before him, saying, I'm a sinner, what these young people confessed this morning as they joined the church. Without God's help, I, I have no hope in this world, they said. But I receive and rest in Jesus Christ, who is my one hope. That's coming to Christ. Well, how are you ever going to do that if you're born spiritually unable to make that choice? Thankfully, John 6, does not end with that first phrase, no man can come to me. And by the way, let me, let me remind you that is talking about ability. I use the very simplistic illustration. I remember it vividly from first grade. We had a little 
you know, lavatory at the back of the classroom in the lower grade classrooms, I guess, so that the youngest students wouldn't have to trek down the hall and get out of the teacher's sight. So I remember early in the semester of first grade, I don't know why I have a vivid memory of this. The teacher really got her lesson through because here I am 60 years later remembering it. The girl raised her hand and said, teacher, can I go to the bathroom 10 feet away? The teacher said, yes, of course you can go to the bathroom and you may. What was she saying? She was describing for that girl the difference between ability and permission. It's quite certain she had the ability to go to the bathroom, but she also was permitted to do it. That's what Jesus is talking about here, ability. No one has the ability to come to God in their natural state. So what are we going to do? Let's bring in the second point, the second part of this verse, except, here's the exception clause, except the Father draws him. Man's hope does not lie in the fiction of our unlimited free will. Our will is not unlimited in its freedom. In fact, it's hemmed in in many ways, and it's actually dead in one area. Our hope comes from some force or influence coming upon us from the outside, divinely changing us. If I ask you the question, what would it take for a dead man to be resuscitated and respond to the voice of Jesus, you probably would be smart enough to say, well, we have an example of that in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. His friend Lazarus, three days in the tomb when Jesus got there. And you probably remember that story, how they said, Lord, don't disturb that gravestone. He's been dead three days. Listen, people knew what hot climates did to dead bodies unembalmed in that day. They said, Lord, it's one of the most blunt statements in the whole Bible. He stinks. You don't want to mess with that. He's so dead, it would be desperately unpleasant. But Jesus said, take away the stone. And then he spoke a word of divine power, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out. Now, did Lazarus walk out under his own power? Did he come to Christ under his own power. Yes, he did. But what had to happen first? The dead man whose flesh would have been stinking had to be brought to life by a divine act. So when we say, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, I I came to an awareness that I needed Christ and I gave him my life and I bowed before him. Did we actually do that by our will? Yes! But how was our will able to do that? Because it was dead before. God brought it to life. And let me tell you, stinking Lazarus was not in that tomb thinking to himself, oh, gee, I've been waiting in this tomb two or three days. I wonder when I'll be able to walk out. No way. He didn't apply for a resurrection. He didn't fill out a, you know, a form and say, please send me the power to be resurrected, Lord, or pray a long prayer. He was dead. But by the intervention of Jesus Christ, he was called to life. And he came to life. And so under his own power, by the muscles of his own legs, he walked out of that tomb with God acting first. Psalm 80, verse 18, has the psalmist named Asaph 
putting things in the right order. Asaph wrote, Lord, quicken us and we will call on your name. Pretty simple, isn't it? What happens before you call on God's name? You need to be quickened. You need to be brought to life. Ephesians 2.8 is well known. It says, by God's grace, unmerited favor, God acting without our deserving it. You know, you've probably heard all the definitions of grace before. By grace, you are saved through faith. And that faith, the pronoun that refers to faith in that sentence, that faith is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, we conclude, we do not believe in order to be born again. We are born again in order to believe. And there are a lot of Christians that just can't figure that out. They really think being born again was all their idea. What did Jesus say? You cannot do this unless my Father draws you by the magnetism of grace to me. I want to just explore that word draw for a moment. It's used a number of times in John and other places. I just mentioned a few of them. John 21, 6 and 11 has that passage where Peter and the others after the resurrection had a great catch of fish when Jesus said, put your nets on the other side, and they, they had such a big catch they couldn't bring it in. And, and there twice, 21, 6 and 21, 11 in John, it, it talks about dragging a full net, full of fish. Same verb as, the, as is translated draw here in verse 44. In John 18, 10, Peter is said to draw his sword out of the scabbard. Now, a sword weighs a pound or two. You know, you have it in a scabbard at your side. Uh, it's not that heavy, but you do have to lift it. It doesn't magically pop out and land in your hand. You have to take a little deliberate effort and pull it out. Paul and Silas are spoken of in Acts 16, 19 as being dragged off to face the authorities for preaching Christ. And it's the same verb as to draw here, same Greek word. In each case, somebody was exerting force to move something that didn't move by itself. That's the point. If you would draw water from a well, we don't do this. I doubt if any of you has drawn water from a well recently. We don't have to do it. We have pumps and we don't even, and most of us have wells anymore. But if you had an old-time well 200 years ago, you know you had a rope and a bucket, and you dropped the bucket, and you got some water, and you drew it up. You pulled the bucket up out of the well with your own force exerted. Same word, draw the bucket. You didn't, I know you didn't say, I not only know many of you didn't draw water recently, I know none of you ever leaned over a well and said, water, come up doesn't work that way, does it? It takes a container and some amount of force to bring the water up. Well, similarly, our Scripture says it takes the intervention and the action of God to draw a man or woman who has no natural inclination to come to God to himself. The same drawing power that a magnet exerts upon iron filings or a heap of paper clips or whatever you will. And you've all played around with magnets and have some idea what they do. It's an irresistible force on other metal. 
Martin Luther wrote about this force of God, this drawing in his, his great book, The Bondage of the Will, and he said this, when God works in us, he was talking about this drawing work of the Holy Spirit, he said, the will is sweetly breathed upon by the Spirit so as to desire new things, not by compulsion, but responsively. You catch Luther's emphasis? He was saying, look, it's not a violent force. Does, God doesn't come in and, you know, kick us around and grab us and throw us in a new direction. He works, I'll give it this way, and I don't know, it's possible somebody would even be offended by this illustration, but I think it, it, it's correct. It, he doesn't work the way in violence that a, a man, a thug, would attack a woman in an alley and try to rape her. But rather, he works the way a husband would woo his wife and encourage his wife and, and express genuine affection to his wife. And, and they would exchange affection, not in some violent manner, but because she had been overcome and her will was changed toward him. That is how God works. It's mysterious. We can't really explain it completely. But it's as if our magnetic polarity is, is the wrong way. You know, the, the same sides of a, of a magnet. You ever try to take two powerful magnets and, you know, the, if you've got opposite sides, boom, they're right together. But if you've got the same poles, you can work all day long and you won't get that last quarter to half inch gap to close because they are opposing each other. That's where we are naturally. But if God reverses the polarity of our hearts and our minds, He brings us to Himself. And we gladly yield to Him. Our hearts are remade. And coming to Him is then a joyful thing. I heard one of these stories that isn't tied to a particular person. You might call it, you know, sort of an urban legend kind of pulpit story, but it, it sounds certainly like it could be true. A, a mature Christian was giving his testimony, and uh, he could recount a long life of walking with Christ, and he stood up and told the congregation how his, his testimony was all in these terms, God sought after me. And God found me. And God showed me His love in Christ. And God showed me that Jesus had ransomed me and justified me. And God showed me that His Holy Spirit was cleansing me and giving me a new life. And His whole testimony was that way. God did this. God pursued me and so on. And after the testimony was over, a man came up to him after church and he said, well, you know, I liked your testimony, but he said, it just seemed like it was so incomplete to me. You you told me everything God had done, and, and in my estimation, it's a 50-50 transaction. You had to do something. You didn't tell us anything about what you did. And the mature Christian said, oh, yes. Well, I apologize for leaving that part out. Here's, the, here's what I did. I spent my life running away from God, and He came running after me until He caught me, period. That's our part, running away until God came and took hold and took captive of us. There's great encouragement in these verses. Yes, there's some mystery here in the, in the working of God. Why does He work on one person this way and not another? That's not a question I'm even going to today. 
But we look at John 6.37 and 6.44 here and we see divine grace plans salvation and executes it. Provides the motive power that changes a heart. The Scripture says in one place, how can a leopard change his spots? You know, there's, there's no leopard that ever came along and said, you know, all these other guys have got spots and I've got them too and I, I'd like to be distinctive. I think I'll just get rid of my spots. Can't do it. Leopards have spots. That's all there is to it. We can't change our spots, but God can. His grace draws His people and holds them to Christ, and the assurance of Him doing that therefore rests with Him, not with our fickle decisions. Oh, I think I'm a Christian today, but maybe I won't be tomorrow, and I was yesterday, but I don't feel like one today. Banish all that nonsense. Grace does the work. And the magnetism of grace holds God's people. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion in the day of Christ. Our Father, these are humbling truths. We confess, like much of humanity, that we don't like these truths because they take away our role and diminish our part. But they teach us how to bow low before you. And thank you all our days for the marvel that you did in giving us salvation. Perhaps someone today will even so humble himself or herself. We thank you for the magnetism of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.